This is the Agile Thoughts Podcast, and I'm Lance Kine. Well, hi, I'm Troy. I'm, um, I'm a consultant in the metrics and the forecasting space. And I guess, you know, the question you always get is, how do you describe yourself to your mother? So uh, when my mother was alive, she said, I don't know what you do. And at first I sort of said, I help people move post-it notes and avoid paper cuts, a la Kanban. Then I sort of said, what do I do now? I teach mathematics, simple mathematics to executives. This is a series with Troy McGinnis, Man of Metrics. And today we have a special guest. Peter Minowski, I'm a technical coach um, helping teams do things right. And I'm interested in how to achieve that balance of doing things right against doing the right thing and doing things sustainably and that quality. So I'm interested in Troy's way of approaching metrics. I see that the internal piece versus external, a lot of time that happens because if someone on the team will tell outside that we're in trouble, then then somebody's going to try to help them. And they might come in with the help of like, well, do you need more people? Or, you know, they offer all sorts of help except moving the deadline, for example. So they'll keep the constraints that matter and relax constraints that sort of might not be helpful, right? Because adding more people to the project never helps in the short term. So getting to the right deadline seems to be a very difficult thing for the team. And once the deadline is put in stone kind of thing, it becomes unmovable. So how do you advocate with your data that it's the deadline that needs to move because all the other help that the team might try to get will not fix this? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, I probably approach the forecasting and teach the forecasting differently than most people do. I actually like fixed deadlines. I think that uh, we must sort of have a target date that we're going to deliver something by. And the stuff I sort of tend to teach on that is the fact that there are only two real levers that we need to control. The order that we start work so that the right stuff gets into that deadline of the most value over time, because we can always have another one after that. And the second thing, is there a way of splitting the work to get parts of the stuff we weren't going to get the full complement of to get something valuable out there? And this is the way economics works, right? I mean, the finance team doesn't move the quarterly deadline, even though the sales numbers haven't reached the target they wanted yet. So the more in the uh, finance teams, you're sort of, if you're working with management or executives, which come from the finance industry, they just all know that it's the quarterly markers that they're working to, and their job is to get as many, much sales as they can between those time boundaries, they don't, they don't shift the quarter to hit the target. So I, uh, I think it's the same. What I sort of tell the teams and management sort of I'm working with is that the reason we delivered late is we started late. We just didn't start early enough to deliver by the date that you wanted it. So our job is, is to make sure we understand 
when we start something, that it has a chance of meeting that deadline. And for that, I'll give you a likelihood at the start of the project. This is 100%, this is 100%, this is 50%, this is 25%, this is 5%. Now, if you need some of that 5% feature to move up in probability, you have to trade with me one of the other ones. Because at the moment, this is our capacity that we have. And the second part of your point is, if you, your job of forecasting is to never say no. It's just, we can't get all of this. And if you go in without a plan for how to get more of it, at least the next one on the list, you need to be in control of that conversation. So that's where the metrics sort of show the ability to improve. Don't add developers because that's not where our constraint is. Here is where our constraint is. We don't have our designers. So I once had a real job. I was sort of once sort of VP of engineering for 800-odd people. And my directs used to come to me. And I said, come to me every one-on-one just with two things. A person or a skill set that you need to most improve the throughput of your group and organization. And also, a skill set that you have excess of, or that if you gave up, it would do the least damage to your group. I want skill set that would improve you the most, the skill set that would damage you the least. And all I would do, and I looked like a star executive, would I just go, I'd just pattern match. Oh, that's funny. You need a designer, and they can give up a designer. Go talk to Joe. Swap the staff for a couple of the, one team of the designers for maybe three months. Good. And all of a sudden, all, what I did was really it was just do the conversations they should have been having with each other. I was just sort of making them aware of don't come to me without the skill set that you need that would have the most impact in improving your flow. And with that, I stopped having, hopefully, I didn't force my will on what they needed onto them because I made them tell me what they needed in advance. And I think that's what we need to teach our leaders to do a bit more of uh, like, okay, I need more of this. Give me options. Go away. Don't answer right now. Don't answer in front of me. Go away and ask the team three things that I could do and invest in to actually get that next item on that list. That's what I want you to do. And that doesn't happen enough, right? Because we think we, uh, I was a coder once, so now I know how to code. Well, my COBOL coding does not cut it anymore, right? I do not know how to do React. Every time I try and do CSS, the screen looks like a random jigsaw puzzle. So I am the least qualified and equipped to give you ideas about how to get that next React CSS heavy feature in your program. And I need to step back and ask you what it is. So often I'm coaching executives how to shut the hell up. Interesting. I like how you're using, let's see here. So you're doing, you're, you're, you're brokering between people, collecting intelligence, if you will, from different people about what they have access to. That, that was really, really powerful and what they have a, a shortage of. And then getting them to connect. And then the other th- point was is when they, uh, people come before say a VP, there's a, a bias towards having to answer whatever the VP asks for and do it on the spot where you're saying, like, look, go back, talk to people, think about it, and then come let me know, which encourages flow of information from the, the people doing the work up to upward. And the reason I could do that was because it wasn't at the deadline. 
because it was months before the deadline, was because they were telling me that something was at risk three months in advance. If I set up a scene where I only accepted good news and I yelled at people with bad news, I would only find out the week before, you know, it was a meant to go live, right? So you gotta you gotta set up an environment where bad news is the promised land of of of, uh, of information, right? And to do that, you've got to find a way of asking and the questions of the team. So it's a very non-threatening. Come with me and tell me what type of skill set would most benefit your program. Come back and give me the skill set which would, if I took from you, would actually impact you the the least, right? That's a very non-threatening question. And telling them that just like I don't have all the answers, I don't expect you to have all the answers. Go ask your bloody team. Yeah. I'm paying them 150 grand a, a year each. Give me some value. <laughs> cool. Right, right. Yeah, no, I like how you also framed it as, well, you, you, you know, when you think about real options, you have time because you have visibility about the problem as well and you're, 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 you have options to, to work those out. That's what forecasting is about. Forecasting is about buying you time to make a decision, right? The reason you're doing the forecast is to sort of say, that's not what I want. But the real part of the forecast is then what do I do to get what I want? Uh, and, and you know, uh, so, you know, Peter, if you go in and you're forcing things on the team, it's not, uh, it's not going to – you're just throwing investment at something and it's not going to be the benefit. So a little bit of extra time to come up with a, you know, a way of – three ways of improving flow – and then I will, of course, pick the least expensive to me <laughs> is the right way of doing it. But, you know, I've seen people go for the most expensive. Let's just add 10 developers when a, when a CSS designer would have, was needed. That's inefficient. Right. So if I go with the fixed deadline, it's really the forecasting is a method of curating content. That decision-making of... Well, that feature is more important than that feature. I should start working on it first. And those features have realistically very low chance of being you know, completed by that deadline. So that's a very useful information because a lot of times what happens is here's the deadline, here's the content, don't come back until it's done. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the conversations if you lead with managing that way. I mean, you're delusional if you don't think you're going to be making content-cutting choices at the end if you go with the the traditional way of setting a deadline and setting scope. So all I'm doing is knowing that it's going to occur and making that decision happen earlier. And the discussion isn't around sort of what I'm trying to promote is, yeah, let's know why we're doing this one first. And it might be not the most valuable, but it could be the most urgent the most impactful if we miss. And the second thing it promotes is the fact, you know, if if you keep bringing me sort of 150-story epics to do, I'm going to be saying no a lot more than if you bought me sort of five, five to ten-story epics uh, and I could sort of work on the start order to help me coordinate across dependent teams. So by giving me these huge, huge things to do, you're – congesting the system of dependencies across multiple teams and skill sets that I struggle to manage even when it's done 
easy, you know, even on an easy feature. So all of a sudden you're having the conversation around, I can't give you that, but I can give you this. And which bit of that big, huge honking thing is most valuable that you is making you say you really need it now. And it turns out to be a fraction of it. If I do that, can I finally do some tech debt to make sure that I can deliver the rest of it in the next sort of uh, quarterly time box or something like that? You're starting to not have IT just as a cost center. You're starting to have IT and development as a, a value-added section, a partner. And uh, that's sort of what I'm trying to set up with all of this work is that we're a partnership on getting the most value delivered in the shortest period of time. And we know the system better than you do. You know the customer better than we do. So if we don't bloody work together, it's going to be a nightmare and no one's going to win. So I ha often have to remind the executives that they don't know the code as well as the coders. And I often have to remind the coders that the executives aren't all on drugs. Uh, <laughs> and so there is a uh, there is sort of some co-parenting that has to happen to bring those two groups more in alignment. And that's what I think the sort of the leadership's role in a company is, is to make sure that those two aspects of business are, uh, are working well together, uh, not working well individually. Agile Grande teaches you systems thinking through dramatic storytelling such as Carter takes a job to improve a logistics company's adaptability, but efforts to scale agile practices are being blocked by Mr. Chernesky, a vice president who's organized the company into siloed pigeonholes in order to secretly make millions with a dark web shipping service. Carter's life is in danger. He goes underground and a spy agency hunts for him. When Carter uses systems thinking, systems modeling, and organizational change to save his company and his life, you get to learn how to apply that to your organization as well. Get your free copy of Agile Grande at leanpub.com. Are you enjoying the episode so far? You know what would go with this episode really well? That would be some show notes. You've never heard of show notes? You know, if you're using a podcast player, they show up right inside of your podcast player for easy tapping. You just got to scroll into it. Now, if you downloaded this from a website, Go back to that website and you will find on that webpage the show notes and there'll be links back to Troy's company, the link to Troy's repository of Excel spreadsheets for tracking metrics and all kinds of good stuff. So find those show notes and you will find that cool specific content. If you're enjoying this series and you're like my friend JT and you missed episode 167, which is the the first episode that kicked off the series with Troy McGinnis, go to your favorite search engine and type in Lancer Agile Thoughts Archive and you can find episode 167 there. Next episode, more Troy McGinnis. Now, this, this is maybe a little less comfortable question, but is there a spectacular failure using metrics that 
you care to share with us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I mean, is it just my methods or methods in general? Um, I mean, the, I have a great sort of deck of I, my 10 failures, my 10 best failures, and I often give it as a lunch and learn to the, uh, to the teams once I'm near the end of engagement because if I did it at the start, I wouldn't be able to charge my hourly rate. But, but, the, but, the, uh, but I mean, you, be under no illusion that even when you do think you have a rigorous method for, uh, for instance, um, you know, I sort of said there's six dimensions that you must measure in flow, and I'm sure you're going to put the little graphic image in the uh, in the show notes so people will see the six. It started off as four. Why are there six now? Because I nailed those four, and the company still went bankrupt. 